All right, we are in the Detroit is Different Incubator Space, Detroit is Different Podcast Studios. It is Wednesday, October 25th, 2017. I'm with one of the big homies of the big homie, DJ Lopes' father to me, but Butch Small, the man behind the plan, putting different things together, percussion, hip-hop records, pop records, soul records, R&B records, and he's still touring with everybody that you could think that make the best soul music in the world. How you feeling today, Mr. Small? Oh, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm really chilling. I'm glad to be back home because I just got off the road, um, what, 24 hours ago? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're, you're actually up earlier than I'd expect because you're still a road warrior. So let's give a little bit of context to the listeners. Um for the Detroit hip hop artists and the person that uh, listens to Detroit hip hop, World One Records is the introduction. But you've probably heard this man play with everybody when we think about any music that you're listening to at any family cookout. So it started with a mutual friend and one of my other mentors and Joe Pep playing with the Undisputed Truth. Fresh out of Cooley High. And then from there, it's been on the road with Booty Collins. It's the Four Tops, the Temptations, Mariah Carey, Tupac Shakur. Snoop Doggy Dog. Um, these are just a few of the different people you've played with. Uh, the Diplomats. So many people. Ja Rule. A lot of music. Mixing music. Mastering music. Playing percussion. And then just giving people that sound and presence of mind that is an ultimate touch. And you're one of the most trusted people on tour with everybody that we can think of. So when we start this journey, what was the first instrument you learned how to play? Well, the first instrument uh, that I really, I got intrigued with was a uh, pair of bongos. Um, I had a play uncle named Rip that used to come over to our, our house. And see, our house back then was like uh, a music house. My dad would buy jazz albums. My mom would buy all the latest Motown 45s and anything current that was uh playing on the radio that would hit records. So my uncle would come by, bring the bongos, and sit up and play to jazz records on the, on our hi-fi. At that time, we had a hi-fi. Uh, and uh, so he wouldn't let none of us kids, you know, I, I got a younger brother, about a year old, uh, younger than me, and my sister, which was younger, which wasn't even... She she likes music, but she never really uh, pursued it. Mm -hmm. But um, I uh, well, just beg him, you know, can I play your drums? Can I play your drums? Can I? He would never let us touch a drum. No, nah, y'all kids, y'all, you know what I'm saying, y'all little kids. No, no, no. And I I think I was hmm, maybe eleven, about eleven then. And so one day, he let me play his drums and he put on the hardest record that he thought was the hardest record because he couldn't even play it you know or play along with it he would be he would be playing along with it but I could tell that he wasn't nowhere in the spectrum of what he wasn't listening to all the other instruments he was playing but he definitely didn't listen to the music theory that was happening with the rest of the instruments so that he could be a part of the ensemble so he let me play. Then I started playing the song and playing the same parts that was on the record. He was amazed. So at that point, he would come over and he would just let me play. And uh, I haven't been past that house in years, but they took, took those bongos and put them on the mantelpiece uh, because once that was that was my beginning and after that um uh, i started just stopped doing the sports thing you know all my partners want me to come out and play basketball or baseball you know which we was only playing in the alley you know what i'm saying we wasn't the nba uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, alley alley hoops in detroit alley is hoops. uh it, it, yeah. it gets aggressive alley yeah hoops we would we would do anything kickball all of that uh -huh. and then i just I, I started floating back and they'd be like how come you ain't hanging i said man i'm in the basement i'm in the lab and you know <laughs> they didn't understand you know what i'm saying so but as time went on um 
Mm. I uh, started uh, doing talent shows like at Cooley, you know. Um, and from that point on, it was all studio for me, you know. And it's been it's been this long journey that um, I'm really really excited about the journey because I I know all the all the people's lives that I've touched uh, from the point from point A to now, and it's been so so many you wow. know so many. So when you talk about that journey and you mentioned Cooley High and I yeah. got so many questions to ask you but let's start right there. Yeah. Cooley High as a high school is no longer open but when we think about the legends that went through Cooley High and what Cooley High meant to that whole community over there like it was an anchor in that neighborhood. Oh yeah. What was Cooley High when you went and what class did you graduate from and what was the music department like there when you were going? Well, uh, Believe it or not I didn't even get into the music department mm. when I went to Cooley. Mm. Um, I'm one of the products of the hood, okay. you know, and I'm I'm proud to say that I'm a product of the hood because I I really do believe the environment, you know, my my partners and 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 all of us, you know, we really wasn't so much interested in school, but we understood that we had to go to school mm. and we learned. But uh, I'm 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 definitely a product of the hood, so I I guess you we could say I was a little street street thug at that point, and I had a um, a little team of people, you know, and we were known in school like you know we were cool. Everybody knew okay. that. Yeah. Okay. So if if this was the the take, if you're winning the talent shows against the people that are going through the formal lessons in music, yeah. I can only imagine the envy, the the reaction, the feel. Oh yeah. And they were like, "Well, how did you learn all this stuff?" Yeah, I got a story for it, for that one. Okay, sure. My sure. my first talent show that I did there, I wasn't even supposed to be on the talent show. Hmm. Um I was sitting in the auditorium, you know, we would have you would have a day performance and an evening performance for this school talent show. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting in the audience with my girlfriend and my best buddy, Michael Bird, at that time, and his girlfriend, we all sitting in the auditorium getting ready, you know, for the talent show. So we looked up on stage, and then I told Michael, I said, man, I, I can play those. It was a set of congas up there and bongos and stuff. So Michael dared me. He said, he, they never knew I did music because we just did other things. We just rolled like yeah. partners, yeah. you know. And I said, he said, I dare you go up there if you can play that. I said, you dare me? And he said, yeah. So I got up, walked up to the stage, and they had ROTC guys with the uniforms on on both of the staircases where it leads up to the stage. And I told the ROTC guy, I said, well, I'm supposed to be up there. I'm playing in the talent show. So he looked at me like, you know, like, for real? I said, yeah. So he said, he said, okay. So I guess he thought I was going to go up there and make, you know, just clowning. You know how guys clown, you know, like, and stuff like that. So I went up there. Then they had these singers come out. And so the band assembled to play behind the singers. And no one was on the congas or bongos because they, they were somebody for the next performance. So I went out there and played, and I played with their performance. Hmm. And uh, so when we were done with the performance, uh, I was backstage with all the musicians, and I, I was asking people, I said, Who's, whose instruments are those? And this guy said, they're mine. His name was John Brooks, and he was in this group called Sins of Satan. And me and John stayed close. He passed last year. Hmm. Um, to this day. And um, so I said, man, I didn't know whose instruments those were. I hope you don't mind that I played your drums. He said, oh, no, man, it was cool. It's good. It's cool. So we've been close like that throughout, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, the guys that I wound up playing with on that particular show was Ricky Lawson on drums, Ricky Rouse on guitar, Eddie Watkins on bass, and, and myself. 
And so we wind up forming a, a relationship. So at that point, we all wind up leaving high school, maybe either in that year or the next year, to play with Undisputed Truth. Mm, ain't that something? So sometimes a career starts from a bet. Oh, yeah. And oh, everything yeah. comes together. Yeah. Now, before we jump into those questions, because I definitely have like both sides of this equation, as they say, you know, it's it's three sides to the story. It's yours, mine, truth. Right. Right. <laughs> so I know some of Joe Pep's stories of uh undisputed truth as well. <laughs> uh the male lead vocalist of the group. Absolutely. But let's stop right there at that Brooks name. Yeah. And I, I found it like a treasure. My friend, and I'm sure you know him too, but Jallo did this special performance to honor Roy Brooks. Mm-hmm. And I just was going because I was like, okay, let's, uh, let's support Jalo doing what he's do- doing. Sure. Sure. And it was the first time I heard Roy Brooks music. Yeah. And since then I can't, I, he moved from not knowing who this guy was. Yeah. To immediately like, wow, I did not know like a drummer and a percussionist could right. be on this level. So yeah. When we think about, him and let's stop there and then let's expand to some of the other talent in and around the city of Detroit but Roy Brooks alone what was it like finding these other percussionists like him and and what what does he mean to you and that journey of that style of drummer yeah well I liked Roy um see at the point that you know where I was coming up I never had no mentors I never thought about who could you know who was the best or whoever because i was yeah. i was into forging what it was that i wanted to be yeah you know so we all wind up being on that same type of level uh-huh. because it's it's like crazy talent you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's like you you'll see something that you you would see uh other musicians do and say oh that's dope right there and you know and that's and then they would see you and then we like, oh, that's bad right there. So we would all kind of sit around and 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 give head nods, like, yeah, you know. Okay. I mean, the competition thing back then, it was that's the way it was. It was like the competition of what is he gonna come up with? Uh, what is he gonna do? Uh, what is? And so we we admired, we admired everybody because everybody was so so unique. Yeah, and and I think about what you bring to the styles, and then as you talk about unique, and I I was thinking um, another one of your peers, uh, late another late legend. When we think about Sundiata Keita, oh yeah, yeah, and everything he's done, yeah, yes. You see, you know, it's it's like um, all these guys. We've all knew each other. We never really had a chance to really hang out that much with each other because we all were pursuing our career uh-huh. and but when we would see one another you know the last time I even seen him I think it was in California it was so many years back I can't even remember the years mm-hmm. but his style was more an intra traditional you know the playing uh playing of congas and things of that nature but he had a rhythm that was like it was really rhythmic uh with the African like he had the vibe that he would he would do that. Me myself as a percussionist, I went after being a stylist. I went after being a stylist with an array of all new instruments, all different type of new rhythms, you know, so that they can't say, well, that's a bambata uh, rhythm or that's a you know a Cuban rhythm. I went. I sought after being totally different than the other rhythm, so that the other guys couldn't just like come up and say I can do that. That was my whole plan to be totally unique. Well, yep. you you played with sounds in ways that were so unique, and then also the ear of being an engineer, right? Along with yeah. it, placed you in a space where yep. my favorite form of music outside of hip hop, yeah. Is funk. Oh, yeah. And when I oh, think yeah. about funk, right, you're on some of the most legendary funk records <laughs> yeah. there are. Yeah. Adding that flavor and adding right. that accent yeah. because some of that stuff from the Funkadelics and Bootsy. Oh, yeah. And even the guys in Dayton that were replicating a lot of that sound. Like some of those sounds you're yeah. listening to, like, what is that? Right. Yeah. See, and that's, that's part of the, uh, 
I mean, that's part of my thought process and music theory of sound and being able to engineer because I would do a lot of things even backwards on tape. You know, I'd turn the 24-track tape over backwards and record sounds, you know, and then flip it back over. And you would never be able to know what it was. All you knew, it was there. Mm -hmm. And then I would add the other layers on top. And I, I created a, a type of percussion plan, and I call it a, a, like multi-percussion. I might take a set of percussion instruments and record all of them together in one pass on a track and in stereo because I knew mic placement and everything. And then I'd do another pass in stereo and have them do counterparts to the other, you know, in between the spaces. So now you got a whole layer of percussion instruments and you got these sounds coming and you know, you, you know, and it's, and it's placed in the rhythm where it's in between the space of the bass and the drums. You know, and then you got your colors or your guitars and your keyboards coming out of it and that stuff is like, it's like, it can't not be, you know, like how a bass would be dominant on a song mm -hmm. or this would be dominant on a song. It wound up being the percussion that is, percussion is dominant on the song, you know. And I and I love doing that uh, because the colors and the instruments and I got about maybe maybe sixty seventy five instruments all different type of percussion instruments and then I used to even make things you know like my hand claps and stuff you know hmm. things of that nature you know so hmm. yeah it's very interesting and along this journey one of the things that is also unique as in that time very straight and narrow and also on the business side because one of the tragedies of a lot of the funk artists that i looked up to in the funk legends is yes the the struggles they've had with addiction oh yeah the struggles they've had with different forms of those addictions including right. alcoholism right and through this time yeah. being so young and this yeah. puts me right back to those questions of right. you're fresh out of high school right and actually two months left yeah. Two months left Two in months high school. Left. Yes. And now you're you're a national, international tour. Right. Undisputed Truth. Right. Grammy winners yeah. at the time when a lot of black people were not getting Grammys at all. Like, Absolutely. Not even necessarily invited. Absolutely. So to go from walking the halls of Cooley. <laughs> yeah. To now performing in the biggest stadiums to offer. Right. On the road with access to so many of the different things that you want. Women. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Women. Drugs. Yeah. Alcohol. Yeah. You know, uh, even the gluttony of food. Right. Um, what what kept you on the straight and narrow path and, and away from so much of that as it was in abundance with so many of the people that you were associated with? Well, what kept me on the straight and narrow then, I was married my senior year in high school. Hmm. So... Uh, I was 18, she was 16 for a week and then turned 17. So when I left high school, I was married and then I had uh, my oldest son, DJ Los, uh, at that point. Uh, and so my, my head was like grounded. My whole focus was I'm gonna be this great, great star. I'm gonna keep it moving. And, and and all the all the elements, all the temptation was around me, the women, the drugs, the alcohol, but I did none of them. I did I did no drugs and I didn't do any drugs. I might drink occasionally now. It took about ten years, ten years ago before I even started drinking and it's it's like on occasional basis, you know. Mm -hmm. But everything else I'm never been involved with so I just had one of those focus uh, my focus was really on the music and, and that is so unique especially being that you were associated with people that use the drugs to wake up oh absolutely use the drugs to go to sleep yeah even some of the people yeah. you're still associated yeah. with now we're not going to throw any people under the Ex bus or exactly. anything, but yeah they use it almost yeah. as the mechanism and sometimes to be like okay i'm not creative right without this when i think right. about the talent of somebody like rick james sure yeah. and i think to myself 
it was such a haze or, or a sly stone, like such a oh, haze yeah. of the amount of substances they're taking. Yeah. And I know a lot of it is the fact that they're feeling as though without this. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to get into this creative process. True. You know, and it and, and it's, it's a thing that and I've been around a lot of people mm-hmm. that they do have uh, the thought process of like, mm-hmm. I need this. So that I can do this, and it enables them. Yeah, you know, you know, and I, and, and, and they yeah. love it. I I've done uh, recordings with singers that I wouldn't think that they would just smoke cigarettes and drink liquor mm-hmm. all day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> it's like they got to be in the zone. And I know mm-hmm. some great singers. I I I really I'm not gonna say any names because yeah. they're they're. Yeah. Some are still with us, some are deceased, but they're uh, like ultimate talent, you know. Yeah. And and I just couldn't phantom needing anything like I do water or food or, you know, or rest, you know. And and it's definitely like that. And yeah. some of the stories that, and God bless them, I had the opportunity to meet oh, yeah. Norman Whitfield before he passed. Sure. Um, through Clay McMurray. Right. And the stories that they would tell about some of the stuff that would happen at Motown. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, oh, yeah. and yeah. phenomenal on the creativity. Yeah. And then the preposterous side. Right. So much so to the point where I remember when when my sister, when Dave Chappelle was going to do the real Hollywood story, the true Hollywood stories on Rick James. Okay, yeah. And I told my sister that day, because she was living upstairs from me, right. I was like, look, whatever you do, you got to watch this show. Because if these stories or even an iota true yeah. that I hear about Rick James. Sure. Then this will be one of the most entertaining yeah. pieces that you'll ever see on TV. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. like, even the preposterousness of, like, so many of the acts and yeah. then that talent and then keeping those people in line and keeping them oh, on yeah. the road. Oh, yeah. What was it like joining the Motown machine well, at such a young age? Well, when you know, I really wish I had been about five years uh, older. Uh-huh. Uh, because I'll be 65 in January, mm. and I would have been right in there with Motown. I got the remnants of Motown. I was able to play with a lot of the musician greats, you know, mm. like Earl Van Dyke, uh, uh, Uriel Jones, Pistol Allen, uh, Eddie Willis. Um, who else was there? Uh, uh, shoot. Uh, Dennis Coffey. Um, yeah, and so I caught the last tail end when when I did Undisputed Truth, Smiling Faces. At that point, Motown was getting ready to move to California. Yeah. You know, and so I was only able to perform with musicians that didn't go to California, that mm-hmm. stayed here mm-hmm. and didn't leave to go out there. And I was like at a young age, like 20, yeah, maybe 19, 20 at the, that point. You know, and then then a new music studio environment started kicking in, like dramatics and enchantment and everybody. You know, so um, I just missed that early, early Motown scene, uh, and and now it's it's so ironic that I missed that Motown scene, but now I'm in that Motown scene at a later yes. date. With the four tops and temptations, you know. True. Yeah. And they they won't go anywhere without you. Oh yeah, they won't go anywhere without me. And that that keeps you on the road <laughs> most. Of, I would say probably two thirds of the time. Yes, they and do. Along with them. Yeah. When we talk about that transition, what was it like witnessing something like that? Because that was a very unique time for Detroit and yeah. definitely Detroit musicians. Yeah. As the shift in focus for a lot of reasons that. I, I would want to bring Clay on and to talk mm-hmm. more about this, but some of the things that Barry Gordy was looking to do with music, he felt that the limit was reaching that ceiling. So yeah. transitioning into film right. seemed to be more of an opportunity. Exactly. So what what was the sensibilities of the musicians at the time? How were they how were they looking at that? How were they approaching that? Did that change the 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 way that they were attacking the the different rooms and performing around town with bakers and all the clubs up and down Dexter and yeah. Mozambique and everything. Well, 
a lot of the musicians felt like Motown had left them behind, you know, and they had helped put that whole uh, thing in operation, you know, mm -hmm. the sound. The sound of Motown is the musicians and as well as the singers as well, you know. But once Motown wanted to move to the West Coast to do what they did, the musicians that stayed here wind up being part of the other scene of what was coming up. And at that point, that's when self-contained groups started coming in too. You know, you got to look at it two ways. You got your studio musicians and now you got your self-contained bands that's, mm -hmm. that's moving forward now, Yeah, you know. And so now the, the studio musician at that point wind up not getting as much work as they used to yeah uh and so everything changed yeah because motown was run as if it were a factory right it was run like a machine oh yeah they all had id badges just like you do when you go to chrysler and everything so uh -huh. that you could get in the building yeah uh you know and everybody got a paycheck every week just like how you you run a corporation and now the corporation is moving yeah you know and it, whether you you either gonna move with them, or you have to move your whole family, or you gotta figure out what what next to do. You know. So, when you talk about the self-contained band, oh yeah, I, I definitely want to go to my late godmother and w one of the closest in Orthea Barnes. Oh yeah, as yeah, she was one on the pulse of that mm -hmm. and just the trend right. of keeping different bands and musicians together, sure, and running with them. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and she would tell me stories like, well, this is how I do it. You know, she'd always say, baby, this is how I do it. And you need to get to this point where you, where, what you're doing. And I'm oh, like, yeah. I don't know how I can do this. She'd yeah. be like, they get the set on Tuesday. Yeah. On Wednesday, we rehearse. Sure. Thursday night. Yeah. If they don't have it down, then somebody else is going to take their spot. And That's Friday, right. Saturday, yeah. Sunday, we rock it. That's like, right. I was yeah. like, seriously? And She's your like, godmother, yes. yeah, she she had Othelia's place. You know, she loved the, the bands. You know what I mean? That uh -huh. she, she loved local local acts out of here because we had a lot. You know, we had mm -hmm. a lot to offer. But, yeah, the, uh, the self-contained units was was interplay my group well me ricky lawson ricky ross and uh eddie watkins and brenda from the undisputed truth when we left undisputed truth we formed our band called legacy that came back off the road and we were one of the you know self-contained units here and got signed to don davis's production company uh they had groups like rumpelstilston they had brainstorm you know we was all kicking it back in 72 3 4 5 you know and so, with that, let's talk a little bit about Don Davis and Will Davis. Oh, and yeah. actually, oh, they, yeah. their, their first move from down south up here, that family move mm -hmm. around the corner over here on Grant. Okay, okay. And um, actually, to this day, it, it was the biggest compliment. Uh, Will Davis, one time we were talking. Yeah. It, it was it was a slight, but it, it mattered. He was like, I ain't seen nobody talk like this since, since Gordy was talking about that. You ain't going to be able to organize stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, Will is a character, too. Yeah. Um, and the late, great Don Davis, when we sure. think about everything he's done in business and with music. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as he was putting together United Sound and all of his other studios. Mm hmm. You were joining, you you were witnessing this this connection of seventy five up to all those guys from Dayton, Ohio coming up. Absolutely. And, and taking that that funk and building that funk sound yeah. to like a, 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 a this this transition of taking certain elements of of what James Brown was doing. Right. Some of what George Clinton was starting to do. And then mixing in some of pop and disco, it was like a a, a feel that you had a whole lot to do with that. Like what was this sound that was being molded and created at that time? Because I think that that time, that mid-70s yeah. to basically about maybe 81. You're right. Okay. It was like a cleaner sound yeah. than we were used to getting because I love James Brown, but it, it was it's like a gritty funk. Yeah, it's, yeah, he's more like down south gritty funk. But the talent that was involved with the James Brown funk machine, the band and the players – uh were awesome you know but the but you're right the uh actual recording of 
their performances was not very good. At United, we had some engineers like Jim Vitti, uh, Mike Acapelli. These engineers, Greg Ward, they were into sound. Uh, Don, you know, I, I don't know if you knew this, but Don was a, a guitarist, was a session player for Motown. And when he, uh, he had actually told Barry about uh, buying uh, United. He wanted to talk Barry into buying United, and Barry uh, reneged on that. And Don said, well, I'm going to do it myself. And he bought United Sound. And the first big products that he had coming out of there was the dramatics. You know, what you see is what you get. So he was on a roll at that point. Um, then Don, you know, uh, we wind up doing uh, dramatics. Um, we wind up doing the Dales there. We wind up doing uh, Johnny Taylor, uh, yeah. Billy Davis, Marilyn McCoo, yeah. uh, Albert King, yeah. you know. Uh, so... We had this array of, and, and I was one of the musicians that was playing percussion on, on all these records for Don, you know, because Don had, had uh, signed my uh, group, Legacy, to a production deal. Hmm. And um, he even had this black group called uh, Rock and Roll called Death. They were signed to Don at the same time. Oh. And, you know, so we, uh, and then he had the Rockets, which was a pop act. White pop act, you know. Don had a label he was coming out with named Tortoise, and the only two products came out on there was Legacy and uh, the Rockets. But uh, you know, so I mean, United, the that console. See, a lot of the sound of what happened with Parliament Funkadelic and everybody, because all those records were recorded there. Yes. Everything at United. Yeah. That was the go-to studio. Now, it was another studio off Six Mile, where I know George Clinton would do some of his recording. Mm -hmm. Six in, I can't remember the street, but it's not far from Mary Grove, and I'm pretty sure you recorded there, too. Mm, I'm... I can't think of a studio that I recorded with George on six. Uh, I didn't. I never recorded there. The only place I recorded with George was at was United. At United, at United yeah. and the Disc, mm -hmm. out on Nine Mile. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was. He was big. Because I took them there. I took them yeah. to the Disc when we got locked out of United. His <laughs> bill was so high that Don would let the bill get very, very high on mm -hmm. on our family. You know. Uh, yeah. My funk family, which consisted of Parlette, the Brides of Funkenstein, uh, Bootsy's Rubber Band, uh, the Horny Horns, uh, my group sweat band that I had with Maceo and Razor, and Parliament, and Funkadelic. And he would let the bill get so high because we were constantly in the studio 24-7. Yeah. And then he would shut it down. He would shut the door. You know, he'd say we couldn't record anymore until he got paid this money. So George would have to get on the phone and uh, contact Warner Brothers or Casablanca or whatever. And they'd cut a yeah. big check for 20000 30000 yeah. And then we could get back in. But and, until he was able to secure that money, Don wouldn't let us back in the studio. So I, yeah. told, I told George about uh, Superdisc. Uh, which is named the disc as right now, and I took us over to the disc. So we did some Bootsy albums there, uh, uh, Roger and Zap. Mm -hmm. um, we did some Parliament there, and yeah. Funkadelic there. Yep. You know, and that's the only reason there's another studio involved. It all would have been united. It all been united. It, it would and all I been united. Definitely know. Uh, I've I've heard both sides of the story there yeah and being a person that's run a studio i kind of know both sides of the story too oh yeah uh so so i'm i'm well aware of what it takes and sometimes right. dealing with musicians yeah what it's like keeping that whole thing going with the right. creativity oh yeah um and you touched on the dramatics yeah and i've been listening to so many dramatics records right now since right. my mom passed because she loved the dramatics oh, i yeah. have been listening to the dramatics at least once a day right but i that kind of shifts me into the next set of along this journey of being a father being a husband right uh, touring the world yeah with this music yeah 
you also are one of the few people open to the hip-hop movement that starts. And the reason I talk about the dramatics for that is because of Ron Banks. Right. Because I remember meeting Ron Banks as a child, uh, young young guy, and then even as a teenager, as a rapper. And Ron was always supportive of rappers. And it was yeah. like almost a, 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 a tumultuous situation right. kind of in the 80s where yeah. a lot of musicians, a lot of studios, I talk about that in the article I wrote, sure. were not open and welcoming to hip-hop, yeah. but yeah. you supported it. Ron supported it. Yeah. Why were you so supportive of hip-hop in that movement that was well, starting? I'm going to tell you why. Uh, basically, Ron and I got that same uh, thought about hip-hop at the same time. Uh, I used to tour with the Dramatics back in 77, 78, uh -huh. 79. Well, I was I was doing double duties right up in there, too, because I was with, with Bootsy's Rubber Band and Parliament Funkadelic and touring with Dramatics uh, because I, I worked on so many different people's albums and stuff. I could go out on tour and do shows and concerts. Yeah with anybody yeah. and see we saw the hip hop uh, movement come into being because we used to always play the Apollo and we would play New York and so in between shows when we would do the Apollo they would have a, a, a DJ and they have you know he would say little little sins like on and on like what uh, but popcorn so you know, and, and we would see the reaction of these people, mm -hmm. how they would gravitate to this new form, this new music <laughs> form. You know, they didn't, we didn't never think that they were going to last as long as it is now uh -huh. because none of them were musicians. You know, yeah. uh, it was all about, oh, well, they, they don't play instruments and they don't, you know yeah. what I'm saying? I'm telling you, we've seen yeah. it come in and so when it when when we saw the movement come in about hip hop we couldn't believe the staying power wow that it had wow because and then we should have thought about it that way because we were all young one time too yeah. you know and so whatever whatever the youth see records basically um whatever the newest thing that's going to happen it's going to come from the youth but we felt like, well, they ain't they ain't singing, you know, they ain't yeah. singing right, they ain't on pitch, yeah, you know, nah, not at all, not at all. Uh, but they ain't playing no instruments, nah, nah. you know. All I, I, I'm, I think I'm one of the better rappers, but uh, all right. I can play is the knee smack and the thigh slap. See, see what I'm saying? You know? and so, so we was all like, that's not gonna work, not too long, you know what I mean? And uh, and, and it was nice when we would hear them rapping over our music beds that we huh. created, you know, which took us uh, uh, sometimes a period of time to create, you know, huh. and that was, um, but they, you know, and we should have known it anyway because we saw McDonald's and everything else coming into yeah. play, all fast food, everything. So everybody wants things instant now. Yeah. And the music for them, for the hip hop, at that point, it was instant because they didn't have to hire the musicians. They didn't have no. to hire the band. They would just sample this groove that we had put together, and they would rap over it. Yeah. And we we really thought it wasn't going to last that long. But mm -hmm. as as time went on, we started uh, seeing the the elevation of their sound and how they really were in tune to what was going on. And so to this day, that's what's ruling, you know. Yeah, and, and you and Ron definitely embraced it. Well, oh, a lot yeah, of yeah. other we, musicians we were like partners, yeah. A lot of yeah. other musicians like I yeah. remember Barry White, yeah. Rick James. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, they yeah. they came out like adamantly yeah. against right. it. Yeah. You know where yeah. you guys were like, "Hey, if that's what you guys are doing." Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, we, my we, favorite dramatic songs it. right now. Do we, what you want to do, right? <laughs> see, and I, I I played on that record, you know. <laughs> and see, the whole thing is, we seen the reaction of the people. Uh -huh. You know, we're in Harlem. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're doing the Apollo every year, maybe once, twice a year, whatever, and we're up in there, and we are looking at the audience. You know, they they appreciate what we're doing. You know, because they didn't pay them money to come to the show. But 
the intermission thing was a DJ and an MC, and they were going crazy for it, you know? Yeah. So, so we understood it. And see, Ron and I have, you know, we were real close because we even produced things together. Uh, we produced Fat Burger commercials together over at my studio. Mm. Uh, you know, we would uh, uh, talk about different things. I'm, any, any productions he's on, like he produced the Five Special. I'm on, on those albums as well. Mm. Uh, dramatic records, anything that he would produce, uh, I would pr play on his songs as well mm. too. You know, so we, we, we uh, kind of thought of like, I even brought him out to California to do Gangsters Make the World Go Round on, yeah. on uh, yeah. West Side Connection. You yeah, know, I was responsible for that. Yeah, and definitely Doggy Dog World. You oh, were a yeah. big part of that too. Yeah, with Snoop. Oh yeah, and and when I think about this, another thing with Ron Banks, rest in peace, uh, Ron Banks and and Orthea Barnes, both. Yeah, obviously Joe Pep too were very in tune with Black consciousness too. Sure. When when I talk to yeah. a lot of the different community organizers. Yeah. 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 There, there are those names of Orthea Barnes and Ron Banks. They right. were like, yeah, if if, if anything, if anything yeah. was needed. Uh, yeah. Chokwe Lumumba's family, uh, which is very close to another one of my mentors, very close to me, mm -hmm. always talk about the the work that Ron Banks was supportive oh, of. Oh yeah, I'm gonna so tell many you, he was the, coats for kids. Yeah. Um, before Ronnie passed, he had told me. He said, Butch, I don't think I'm going to, I don't know how much longer I'm going to do the singing thing. You know, his voice was changing. Yeah. And he knew that. And he said, I'm getting into this computer thing for schools, for the kids. And that's exactly where he was, he was gravitating himself into a whole nother, um, like career. Yeah. You know, he wanted, he loved kids. He would do anything for the kids. I mean, I remember when we used to do the Me. State Fair. One of his happiest shows that we do when the State Fair was here out on Woodward and Eight Mile. Uh, and every year, if we were one of the acts that was going to be on the show, he would be like, man, we doing the State Fair, but we doing the State Fair, you know. So, I mean, it was like he loved, he loved the kids because he, what, Ronnie has, what, seven maybe six, maybe six, seven kids. And, and he would be the kind of father that would come home from the road and just do things, look at sports, football, hang with the boys, his daughters. You know, he was very, very into the kid kid thing. Well, yeah. I can definitely say when I was, I met him the first time when I was about 16. He yeah. definitely had a way longer conversation I probably would have had with me if I were Ron Banks <laughs> when yeah. I met him. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of presence of mind. It's so funny. I met I met Ron Banks and Proof the same day. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Proof's uh, father works with me now. Uh, he's the music director musician. for The yeah. Temptations, another, McKinley Jackson. Another, he's a very good friend of mine. Another another, another musician because yeah. I introduced uh, Proof's mother. Yeah. Dorothea Barnes and then she walked up and she said you met me before because you knew and uh -huh. she was like that's so you know so it, it, it <laughs> oh yeah it was another connection yeah so when we talk about that connection and proof I mean that brings yeah. us right to world one yeah well what, what led you to say all right I'm gonna make a label for yeah. the hip-hop artists here in yeah. Detroit for that talent that's not really getting any exposure at the time okay this is uh at that point um, I wanted to do records. I wanted to have my own label. I had my own recording studio at that point. And so I wanted to pull myself back from my career, from, you know, playing percussion on different people's albums and things of that nature and build a company. Um, and I'm sort of like Ron. Maybe not as 100% like him, but I'm definitely in tune with the youth. And at that point, my oldest son, uh, DJ Los, he was maybe 14, 15. And yeah. so when I decided to do this label thing, I came and, you know, I came back off the road and, and I seen him messing around with a turntable that might have been from Kmart or something like that. And he was scratching on it. I said, you... You interested in that? And he said, yeah, Dad. I said, well, I'll tell you what. Come and go with me. So we got in the car, 
and I took him to Wonderland Music out on in Dearborn on Michigan and Schaefer because Clarence and Larry, the owners of the store, are good friends of mine. Mm-hmm. So I took him in, and I knew all the the right turntables and mixers that the hip-hop community was using mm-hmm. in New York. So when I took him in the store, I told him I wanted a 1200 Technique turntable. Mm-hmm. I said, give me the statin cartridges, give me the Newark, Newmark mixer, uh, which was the model at that time. I can't remember the name of the model at that time. And I bought him a PV amp, you know, so we can plug into it and, and everything. And um, so I bought all this gear for him that day. I bought, I didn't need anything. I have all my instruments. I bought all gear for, for Los that day. Mm-hmm. And said, here's your stuff. And I bought him the top of the line stuff because I, t- I told him then, I said, if you ever going to be great, buy the best equipment because it's going to help you. Those are your tools. You don't want to buy inferior drums or anything and same thing with turntables and stuff like that you buy the top of the line then that way you're learning on the best equipment possible so he to this day Los got so much new stuff I'm like you know I'm like I'm trying to say wow okay that's okay I see where they didn't change this to this to that yeah but he went home he would shed it and there it is you know, and then I started my label, and I said, you know what? The first first person I'm going to put on my label is Lopes, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like it would be, wouldn't even, I wouldn't have thought of anything else but to put Lopes on the label because once I've seen him develop his technique and his rhythm, you know, I said, he's unique. And we got him a rapping partner put them together, and uh, that was the first album on World One Records, Easy Being DJ Lost, the Untouchable album. Yeah. I produced the album, I did all the music, I played almost all the instruments on the album, and I mixed it, and I, uh, I brought in some heavyweights like Maceo is on a song, playing sax solo on uh, uh, You're My Destiny. Uh, mm-hmm. I got, uh, let me see who else on it. Uh, I think my, my buddy Dave McMurray, who plays sax with Kid Rock and different people. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, you know, all these connections of, of, of people from over the years of, of working. working. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the album, and I think the, the only thing that we didn't do right with that album is I'm so radio orientated that we didn't want them to curse on the album we didn't want them to be totally street you know what i'm saying and that wasn't their decision that was the label decision decision. it was Uh basically my decision because i'm radio orientated you know Mm -hmm. i'm looking at like uh you want to give a dj any song yeah i want them to get here Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that was my decision and not theirs. They, they'd be like, oh, Dad, everybody doing their cursing and all that. And when their album came out, it came out with N.W.A.'s first album, with Easy's album, mm-hmm. okay? And our album and Easy's album was blowing out of the, the, uh, the, uh, the one-stops like crazy, you yeah. know? And, uh, but I didn't let them curse. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it's, it's, it's like, um, sometimes I think maybe I should have did this another way, but with the staying power of the label that I created this 30 years ago, and it's still talked about today. Yeah. I think we did the right thing, you, you know. Yeah, it, it yeah. to this day, it's, it's to find one of those records, it's worth a lot. Oh, yeah. I gave... I gave my friend Sterling my copy of Untouchable that I had. Oh yeah, yeah. Still, and and it just means a whole lot when yeah. I think about that album and Awesome Drain, the Hardcore Committee. Right. I look at those albums as like they they're the the prototype of what we want to do. Oh but yeah. But you also sure. made the other anchor in that yeah. with Chaos and Maestro. Right. From a whole different lens. Oh yeah. 
yeah. of consciousness. Consciousness, yes. And what yeah. led to you picking this talent? And how, and how did you have that discernment? And I know people were looking at you just because <laughs> in, in hip hop, it's, right. it's like if you're above the age of 22, people look yeah. at you like you old. So oh, I know yeah. they were like, man, what you know about rap? You know, I'm just yeah. only imagining that. Well, see, like. you know, like I said, it, it, it came from me being out there traveling and working and, uh -huh. and seeing the movement getting started you know what i mean and uh and basically out of new york i said this is the next big big thing that's going to happen yeah and we were right on it you yeah. know and see chaos and maestro were one of my partners with with the label with the management company sdm management john maxi he's responsible for, for, for bringing me chaos and maestro you know, we we would all have these sit-down meetings, uh, myself and Gene David, which is my partner with World One Records, and then the SDM management was John Maxey, and he would bring us, you know, we would all sit down and say, well, we found this, and we found them, and we found them, you know. Um, and he brought us Chaos and Maestro, and we sat down, and we listened, and we said, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, we we got us our public enemy now. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. So that's how they came into the fold. Then we got Dice. You know, Dice was raw, and my yeah. partner Gene. Gene is like, you know, we all come from the from the streets, from the hood. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. we have respect for that because that's how we came up. Even though. My oldest son right now, Los, doesn't probably know all the things that I did when I was was yeah. a kid. You know, he all he knows is his father now. Yes. You know, and um, Gene got dice. He said, yeah, I uh, found this kid, man. You know, he's kind of, you know, he real raw. You know, sort of like the, uh, what did he, what did he say? He said he was sort of like the uh, strip club. Uh -huh. <laughs> I said, Let's get them. <laughs> we got dice. So we put them all together. Then we got Ebony. Yes. Ebony was conscious on the on the woman tip. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And yeah. she was very profound with that. I mean, you know? even to this day. Yeah. With her work. Yeah. And then she said, you know what? She said, Mr. Small, I, I really want my album. I, I, want, I want live music on my album. I said, okay, we're going to do that. So we start, I started producing ebony's album and we had uh background singers and i had you know people that i had did stuff with was not was like carol hall that had this raw voice uh like uh the weather girls and shit i put her on there singing yeah. hooks and stuff you know what i'm saying so you know we all were in tune with music and and we were trying to we did we went national i set up distribution all over the country okay now, when you talk about that, and I know yeah. we're running up on time, and, yeah. and I definitely want you to come back. Oh yeah, so, I have to. I'll I'll definitely come back. But let's 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 look at like I I just got to give a shout out to my cousin Lamumba. Okay. And, uh, he met his wife, uh, Reverend Michael Reynolds, <laughs> on a Dice video shoot. He said, "There you go. And he That's did a right. lot of the video production. He did a lot of video production gave for me. Yeah. The same way that Motown. Yeah. Gave an opportunity to so many young. Oh yeah. Engineers. And yes. I, like I always tell people, yeah. uh, the advantage that, <laughs> like this is this is like the 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 family tree of things, but." Mm -hmm. Ike Turner was uh, ahead of the game a lot on what Barry Gordy did, but the advantage that Barry Gordy had was he had so many young engineers, and this is like how racism kind of played a role and access to that because of uh, Aretha Franklin's father and C.L. Franklin's yeah. church down the street. Sure. Basically, him recording his own sermons gave sure. him access to engineers yeah. that were open to working with a right. lot of black people, whereas right. you know the guys like James Brown and Ike Turner, they were getting charged like yeah. seven times as much as yeah. a, 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 yeah. a Barry Gordy would get charged sure. or a, a, a Don Davis or, That's true. Uh, or so many different things. And what, what was happening even with Jackie Wilson was certain competitive advantages. Right. You were giving some of those same advantages to people that were connected to hip hop culture yeah. that would have never got opportunities in video right. and engineering and sound. So when you look back and I know you walk the streets of Detroit, I know you bump into so many people that got their starts yeah. with world one. Oh yeah. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know, I, man, I always talk about how I'm from the hood like that, right? I'll get on a DOT bus and ride just to be with the people, uh -huh. just to see, 
You know what I'm saying? Because I remember, I remember when, I remember when I used to sit on the, on the top of the garage and eat green apples out the apple tree that's in the backyard and throw them down and try to hit the German shepherd in the head with the apple, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So I'll, I'll ride the, the bus system just to see what the people are doing, just to see how they, you know, mm -hmm. how things is, is moving like that. Um, I've been always a person that likes to be, you know, aware, you know, like who does video, who can engineer, who knows what they're doing. See, I'll sit back and listen because I, I, I can do a lot of those things, too. I was electronically kind of inclined and, and, and still am to this day um, and know how to put things together because I didn't had the 24 track studios and I didn't I didn't had to stay up all night and engineer and and make sure that the, you know I've I've been mastering with with Dre you know I would go I would be probably one of the only people that go to mastering with him at Bernie Grubman's because Brian Gardner and them been knowing about mastering me for years you know mm -hmm. from Parliament Records to everything else so I got real good friends and Dre we would go in there and master uh, the Above the Rim album, yeah. uh, you know, Snoop's album, things like that. So that made me being part of being like an exec within the framework of Death Row as well. And, so, And that brought me right to the next thing, and we can kind of close out on that. As, um, as I have the, 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 I guess, the screensaver that's up on my on my on my wall and like you know as you talk about yeah. being a young person and the impact and right. death row records had a big impact on my life i mean yeah. just i was born in 82 so oh, yeah. that was like yeah. the music i was listening to as you say young people right uh, whether I, whether the impact some positive some negative all depending upon my own interpretation of what yeah. tupac or snoop or dre were saying sure with that being said i i always feel that should night should night gets a a a, a more grim look mm -hmm. from a lot of media right and, I, and, and yeah. that's kind of why i have that's Detroit true. is different just because I, I wanted my own platform to tell my own stories what yeah. was it like seeing uh 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 such a young black man right build Powerful. an organization like that yeah and then the elements that led to things uh just not not yeah. staying together. What yeah. what was some of what what was that like? As I'm looking to build things, and I know a lot of other people looking to build things, and just what was it like? Well, my take on Death Row when I when I even got the call to come to work with Death Row, uh, Tony Green was uh, instrumental in that. Uh, <laughs> Money Green. Yeah, he had went out to California, um, maybe maybe eight months before before me or whatever, um, I was I had my record label. I had World One when yeah. Tony went to California. So I was already doing things and, and, and trying to go in a, a whole nother direction. I really wasn't trying to work on other people's albums. And get anything. back, basically. You know, back, back, back to where you were. Where I were, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Tony... Uh, called my office um, and uh, told me that uh, Dr. Dre wanted some percussion done on on, on some albums he was working on. Uh -huh. So Dre got on the phone and talked to me. He had seen my name. Anybody that know records, you know, they're on there. You know, they ain't going anywhere. That's 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 my yeah. yellow sheet. That's my whole yeah. rap sheet. Yeah. If yeah. you was in jail, that sheet gonna last yeah. forever. You were, that's you what were that is. Google before Google. There you go. It was I'm, Google. I'm in there. <laughs> and uh, so he said uh, he wanted me to come out and uh, work on uh, some of the music that they were doing. And he asked me, was I? Uh, familiar with them. I saw, yeah. You know, because I'm already in the hip-hop game with my label. I know a death row. I know what they're doing. You know what I'm saying? So, mm -hmm. uh, and I know of NWA and Easy and all of that because we were, like I said, our products were flying out the one stop that was going into the record stores all over the place here. Yeah. Um, so, 
I told him I could do that. And then he said, well, I'm going to give you the number to my accountant, and you call her, and y'all set it up, and you can come out uh, and do it. He said, well, uh, she'll get you a plane ticket and stuff and, and send the necessary you know, money to your bank account or whatever. I said, I'm not going to fly. He said, what? You're not going to fly? I said, no. I said, uh, I said because it's certain, certain instruments I need to bring. You know, and so I'm going to drive out. He said, drive out? How long is that going to take? Two weeks? I said, no, Dre, I'll be out there in two days. So I left uh, World One with John Maxey and my partner Gene David in their hands, and I went to California to go work on, uh, you know, these projects with Dre. So once I got there, <laughs> it was... Uh, uh, I ran into people like Babyface that knew me already because Babyface got his name at my release party, uh, Sweatband, because uh, Vincent and Reggie Calloway from Midnight Star brought him to my release yeah. party in Cincinnati. Uh. And Bootsy is the one that named him Babyface at my party. Ain't that something? Yeah. And so when I came in the back door of L Larry West is one of the main studios that they were using at that time. I ran in the face. He said, Butch, he said, what you doing here? I said, man, I'm getting ready to work with Dre. He said, you getting ready to work with Dre? He said, cool, because he was, he was in the studio, too. He was in, in the other room, yeah. in, in B. So when I came in and unloaded out of my car uh, my instruments into the studio, uh, we were working on the uh, Above the Rim album. Mm. And uh, Daz was there. Oh, let me see. I'd have to call him back. Yeah, Daz was there. And uh, Dre and everybody, you know, so. And that made one of my favorite songs ever. <laughs> and, uh, and the Big Pippin, too. Oh, I was getting ready to say, you probably, <laughs> well, that, you know what? This is, this is amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I did Big Pimpin', Daz and Dre and everybody was in the control room, and I set up all the instruments <laughs> that I was going to do on, on Big Pimpin'. I heard the track. I said, okay, cool. I went in there, set up the track, you know, all my instruments, and I did all my passes and stuff. And Dre and them said, you know, Dre said, when I came in the control room after doing Big Pimpin', he said, he said, damn. He said, shit, you like Simpty Time Code. It's almost like you got a, <laughs> a Simpty cord stuck up your ass. You know what I'm saying? Because he had never seen nobody on it like on that. It like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, he never really, I mean, he worked with musicians yeah, yeah. Before, before when he had did the Chronic album. Yeah. Those guys, even the drummer that played on some of the Chronic stuff, he didn't really care for him you know uh colin wolf played bass colin did good you know what i'm saying but he yeah. had never seen nobody come in no, there no. And, and especially play percussion nobody no. was playing percussion on anything no. at that point on the hip-hop scene mm -hmm. and when i came in and laid down big pimping and all those songs on above the rim he was like he's you know, and he had did an album on Michelle A that had a Silly Love Songs. That's an enchantment song on there. And he said, man, did you play on that song? Because I had the hardest time trying to do the drums and timbali stuff on there. I said, oh, yeah, that's my timbali solo on, on Silly Love Songs. He said, can you show me that? I said, yeah. So I set up my drums, the timbali's in the studio, and played my solo lick for lick. He said, oh, hell no. Nah. He was he was done then. Uh. So, you know, from that point on, me and Dre, you know, I mean, we, we were cool. Yeah. You know, and, and then I would tell the engineers what what microphones to use, you know, so I know what what everything's going to sound like before they even do it. Yeah. You know, I, I know mics. I had a 24-track studio. Yeah. So I know what microphones to use on all my instruments. Mm. So... At that point, and then I would come in the control room and do the balancing of everything, you know what I'm saying? So he knew then, I knew engineering as well, yeah. you know, so it, it worked out good. So that is a great way to end. We're going to pick this up. I'm going to I'm gonna uh, look to 
getting you back in effect and bringing some of your friends too because oh yeah these yeah. stories i believe yeah. are, are priceless i yeah. still have so many more questions about suge we didn't oh, even yeah. get into yeah. working yeah. with mariah carey yeah. we yeah. didn't get into uh, being on the road now with the four tops yeah yeah and and so so many more stories uh world one what's gonna happen next i do have this last question for you yeah when you pressed up your vinyl Yes. And so many people right now are still going there pressing it up. Did you use Archer? I did not use Archer. Uh, I knew of Archer because I even knew yeah. who owned it. You know, uh, I did all my vinyl was done out of uh, Nashville hmm. because I had friends in Nashville, too. And uh, actually, Losenum's album, I mastered it at Masterphonics in Nashville. Huh. Yeah. And that came from... Uh, when I used to work at Sound Suite Recording Studio doing, uh, uh, who was I doing it? Well, I did a project called Spacer that I produced, uh, which me and Bernie, Bernie Worrell and Randy Jacobs wrote this, the song. Uh, and, and that was like a in-house project, and I named it Spacer. Mm. And uh, so I had got the stuff... Q2 Records was out of uh, Sound Suite, and they used Nashville. So I had ties to Nashville already, and that's where I wound up doing all my uh, mastering and vinyl. All right, now this is definitely the music nerd in me. The reason I ask is because it just, those records have like a thicker cut of the vinyl. That's oh, yeah. The, that's why yeah. I ask. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the Archer records are still sure, great. Sure, sure. It sure. just was like a thicker cut, yeah, and I was yeah, wondering because yeah. so many people yeah. use Archer. Yeah, yeah, mostly everybody Detroit. locally did. Everybody locally did, but I wound up doing everything in Nashville. I did their cassettes in Nashville. I did my CDs for Dice's album in Nashville because uh, Los of them don't have a CD because CDs weren't out yet. Yeah, and when we did Dice, that's when the CD, the long box, came out. I did yeah. it in Nashville. Mm. Uh, you know. And so, and the cassette duplicating, I did it in Nashville. Their posters, everything was done all in house in Nashville. Ain't that something? Yeah. So yeah, when we pick up, we'll definitely pick up with uh, definitely hitting those different spots. Uh, oh yeah. Shout out to all those record stores, Justin's, Damon's. Oh yeah, man. Sure. Uh, we think you about know, you White's. Bring, you, you bring in my brain. We think about records uh, for long you. Long back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chantonique's. Chantonique's. Uh, Wonderland. Yeah, music. Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my favorite job to this day was working at that Harmony House out in Royal Oak. Okay, okay. So yeah. uh, we're going to close on this. All Thank right. you so much. I don't know if you want to tell the people how to get in contact with you, but we're going to work on this. As, as I already see, Detroit is different. <laughs> Butch Small collaborating on more and more stuff so you can get this information, oh, yeah. connect, find out more. But how do people get in contact with you? Well, they can get in contact with me. Uh, I don't really do social media. I'm uh, all no. over it because... Uh -huh. Because um, people like me, <laughs> you, know, you know, Facebook and all, you know, these things, I don't I don't I don't do any social media. Uh -huh. uh, I'm not a big fan of social media, <laughs> but uh, you can uh, uh, you can reach me by my email. You can you can reach me, Carl Butch Small at Gmail dot com or Carl Butch Small at Yahoo dot com. Either one. Um and like I said, I don't do Facebook, I don't do Twitter, I don't do anything, but I'm all over it. Every time I turn around, I'm I'm a picture here, there, 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 yep. there. And it's about uh, to be even video, more. Video, you know, so it's all good. I mean, I know it's the way to uh, communicate these mm -hmm. days, but sometimes I don't want to be found <laughs> that fast. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much. All right. All right, Kyrie, I, I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you.